it's been a long week. <laughs> and uh, some notes were scratched sometime between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so I don't really know what's here to say to you today. And so before we say anything, know that you are loved by God. And God will lead us through this wilderness and God has not left us alone. So if you hear nothing else today, you are loved and you are not alone. And now we'll see what else happens. Our texts today are generally pretty familiar to us. And if, if you're newer to Sanctuary and you haven't figured this out yet, we follow the lectionary, which is a prescribed cycle of readings. It's, it's drawn out over the course of three years. And it's intended to offer up all of these different themes in the text. And so over the course of three years, you should generally touch on most of the scriptures. So if you're wondering, like, man, we're here in this kind of celebratory day. Why are we reading this story about the devil and temptation and the wilderness and fasting? Know that it wasn't up to me. And this is just what we have to talk about today. And so, again, these texts, they're all pretty familiar to us. Today's... Uh, text, again, they create a kind of challenge because of their familiarity, that oftentimes when we have scriptures that we've heard and we've heard over and over and over again, we kind of formulate our own ideas about these texts, and then we tend to set them aside, and then anytime we do hear them, we kind of close ourselves off, Thank you. There's not really much here for me to learn. But I hope that today we can, we can hear with new ears or maybe see with, with fresh eyes what the text is saying to us. Today's gospel, it begins with Jesus moving from baptism into the wilderness. And this is a kind of retracing of Israel's history, moving from bondage into promise. Only Jesus is actually doing this in reverse. He's going from this moment of promise, this moment of his baptism, being sent out into the wilderness by way of the Jordan. And we're told that Jesus is led here by the Spirit, which is, of course, a kind of being urged along or nudged along by God into this wilderness space. And he's there, we're told, for 40 days, fasting and being tempted. Now, I have always read this, and maybe you have too, that this is Jesus fasting for 40 days, and then it can on our human nature. I think this is an important point for us. That oftentimes when we consider a story like this, we have in our imagination what the devil looks like, Right? We have these kind of caricatures of whether it's a serpent or something else. Maybe this idea of like the big horns and the mustache, probably smoking a cigarette, uh, wearing a little too much leather for some reason. Um, I don't know if you guys have this picture, but oftentimes when we think of the devil, at least for me, if you grew up at all like I did, uh, my first thought goes to Carmen of all people, <laughs> and Satan bite the dust. And now when, I don't, do we have this picture? I really hope we have this picture. Um, Jody's on it, which I know it's gonna happen. 
We got to end the sermon here if you don't have the picture. (laughs) Because it's too obvious. Like when that guy walks in, you know, like he's up to no good. We shouldn't pay him any attention. But the devil's trickier than this. Of course. And if this is how the devil appears to us, again, I think we'd be well equipped to resist temptation. But of course we're not. And Jesus isn't fooled either. And so what we see is the devil working in ways that are a little trickier, a little sneakier in our lives. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the devil goes around masquerading as an angel of light. This is why we're tricked. This is why we're fooled, because oftentimes the devil is offering up to us things that sound like and feel like good news, when in reality they are a counterfeit for what God really intends and imagines for us. This place of vulnerability, to be famished, is a kind of trap that Jesus is setting for the devil, so that in this moment he's drawing the devil out from hiding in a way, not the other way around. And in so doing, by drawing the devil out, by making himself vulnerable, famished, what he's doing is allowing our human nature to experience the depths of temptation and then to overcome. So that even us as human beings can experience that same kind of freedom. This is the point of the temptation in the wilderness. In the same way that Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, not for his own benefit, but for ours, Jesus goes to the wilderness. In the same way that Jesus descends to the dead, going all the way through death, so that even in death we are not alone, Jesus goes to the wilderness. Jesus goes all the way through temptation, never sinning, never giving way to a counterfeit route of fulfilling his calling so that we can follow in that kind of faithfulness. So we read, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Another way to read this is, exert your power in ways that are false to your calling. This is the trick of the devil, not to disbelieve in God, but to believe in God in ways that are unfaithful to believe in the promises of God that God never actually promised to us. And so then when God doesn't come through on what we expected God to do for us, on those things that God never said he would do for us, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. We decide to to pursue our own way of doing things rather than God's way of doing things. This is the temptation Jesus faces. When he hears those words, if you will worship me, all of this will be yours. We know that all things have been given to him by the Father. But here, vulnerable, famished, tempted, the devil is drawing up within Jesus' own consciousness ways to accomplish his calling in ways that subvert and go around the ways of suffering, in ways that lead away from the cross rather than through it. How do you recover from that one? All right. The Jewish tradition calls this our evil inclination. 
this bending away from the good that we're so naturally prone to. So to be human, to be in Adam, as we all are, it means constantly having instincts that pull us away from the light of truth and love and compassion and care for our neighbor. To be in Adam is to get our own way rather than yielding to the way of God, yielding ourselves to the way of the Father. Now, we don't like yielding. We're American. Wait, and we yield for no one. <laughs> the major turning point in Bonhoeffer's life came in 1939. He was in New York. He'd been offered a chance to give some lectures here in the United States, and he had already made of himself a bit of an enemy of Germany. So they were already after him in a sense. He was deeply unpopular with the German regime. He had been critical of Hitler. He had been running a secret seminary training session for pastors in Germany who couldn't accept the way that this whole Nazi state was trying to control the church. And so after his own kind of wilderness experience, he decides he's going to return to Germany. Knowing that this returning would mean a situation of extreme danger for him. And of course, six years later, he's dead. He's executed for treason in a concentration camp. When we think about this story, it's easy to think about the ways that Bonhoeffer left this kind of freedom here in America that you and I enjoy, that you and I are used to, and he traded that for this complex, risky, dangerous world, getting involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler, living as a double agent, daily facing these dangers of arrest and torture and death. But in his writing, freedom was the one theme that he returned to most often. In a poem that he wrote in 1944, he sketched out what he thought was involved in real freedom. This is what real freedom looks like to someone like Bonhoeffer. It looks like discipline. It looks like action. It looks like suffering and death. Again, not quite what we imagine as freedom in America. But here he takes us into the heart of what it means for someone to be lastingly free. The freedom that Bonhoeffer is interested in and the freedom that Jesus opens us up to by yielding to the work of God and not our own determinations is the freedom to do what you know you have to do. This seems counterintuitive because in doing what you have to do seems to be giving up your right to do what you want to do. But what is really happening in you is that you are handing over your freedom to God and saying, I have done what I've had to do. Now it is up for you to do what only and mercy and love and forgiveness control outcomes in our lives, which is the very temptation that Jesus faces and overcomes in the wilderness, this temptation to control the outcomes in our life. I was going to say quickly, but what are they going to do? Kick us out? <laughs> Let's take a look. This is Romans 10, a text that, again, we're probably familiar with. 
If you brought your Bible, you can flip there. Romans 10, beginning in verse 8 through 13. The message is near to you. In your mouth and in your heart, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, a text that we're all familiar with. But here's the problem, is that so often we have read this text mechanistically. This is fire insurance for us. That if we confess and believe, we'll be saved. This is the formula. Or another way that we've read this in the Word of Faith movement is that your confession determines what you believe. And so you only speak good into your life. You only speak blessing. And this kind of reading has left us famished. It's opened up to all kinds of false lines of thinking about salvation and conversion. The will of God is not a formula for salvation. The will of God, as the, as the text just said, is that we will trust in God and not be put to shame. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved is not so much a formula or a mechanism so much as it's a promise about God's goodness. Again, we've taken... Romans 10, we've twisted it with our human nature, again, this evil inclination, in order to make this personal and interior and private. But to believe in your heart is not just an interior feeling about God and Jesus and the Bible. To believe in your heart is about the animating reality of your being. To believe in your heart is to be moved from your very core to live faithfully in the world. It's not just good thoughts. It's embodied being, embodied living as the people of God. And to confess with your mouth is not just about reciting the formula. It's to join yourself in confession to a people who know that Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. To believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth isn't about you. It's about us. But again, because we're more interested in protecting our freedom and what we mean when we say freedom, we have settled for something less than God's best for us. Let's take a quick look. I promise it'll be quick. At Psalm 91, the psalm for today. This is another psalm that throughout the course of the last couple of years especially, we have clung to as the people of God. Psalm 91 is the pandemic psalm. But hear the words of the psalmist. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
Because you have made the Lord my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place, no harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That should sound familiar. As God's protection. A way to secure a safer life for yourself. As if God is concerned with our safety in the same way God's concerned with our freedom as we imagine it. God has not given us the assurance that we will be safer or richer or better off. And anyone who has suffered and has suffered deeply knows this in their bones. That this is a counterfeit. Psalm 91 is true, but it's true because of Christ who suffered and who suffered deeply. As we confess every week, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. To be sure, Christ's life was riddled with joy and happy moments and laughter, but it was joy that arose from the midst of suffering. Jesus, remember, is the man of sorrows. And it turns out, as Psalm 91 begins, by dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, it turns out that the shadow of the Almighty is the shadow of the body of Christ on the cross. The promise of Psalm 91 isn't that life with God will make you safer. It's not... That life with Jesus means every day is sweeter than the day before. The promise of Psalm 91 is that as you take up your cross with Christ, Christ is with you. The promise is that in your suffering, God knows your name and will be with you in trouble, as verse 15 says. Our final text for today, we won't read it. It's out of Deuteronomy 26. In this chunk of scripture, it's the instruction for the people of God that as they enter into the land that God has promised, they're to, to go through this liturgy of thanksgiving. They're called to celebrate together in remembrance of what God has done for them. It's a liturgy that recalls their ancestors and the wilderness and their nature as pilgrims even as they enter the place that God has promised. The wisdom here is that even as you come into possession of the land, they need to continue to live with hearts as pilgrims, as people on a journey, as people who are rooted and grounded in thanksgiving, continuing to move toward God by retelling with thanksgiving, the story that brought them here in the first place. Again, I don't think I need to try very hard to create some lines of distinction for us. That one of the temptations we face moving into a space like this is to think that we've arrived somewhere, forgetting that we are all in the wilderness. And what's fascinating about this text in Deuteronomy is that they're called to to celebrate this liturgy, to go through these actions of thanksgiving, to enter into this moment of Eucharist, 
remembering where they came from. And they do this in the midst of the foreigners among them. They do this in the midst of the people that they've their neighborhood. And the danger, the risk for us is to settle into a place, to forget that we're pilgrims, to forget that we are wilderness people. And in so doing, we can't see the people around us who are in the middle of their wilderness experiences. We're called to give thanks. We're called to be people of the Eucharist, but we're called to do so in the midst of the strangers. So the Israelites are told, when you enter this land, give thanks. But remember the foreigner. Remember the stranger. Remember the wanderer that's with you. We need to hear that same word. That as we enter a place that God has graced us to be in, we need now more than ever eyes to see one another. Eyes to see the strangers in our midst, those people who are still wandering, those people who are experiencing another 40 days and another 40 days after that and another 40 days after that. In that wilderness, he was moved from a place of belovedness. So if you hear nothing else today, know that our journey begins with a word that you are beloved. You are not alone. You are in the shadow of the Almighty. And God is with you in trouble. Amen.